Hello, everyone. I'm Rebecca Crook Stratton, and I'm here with a special edition of our podcast. I'm on site at the 79th Annual Convention of the National Congress of American Indians. NCAI, as it's called, is the oldest and largest organization comprised of tribal governments. Its mission is to preserve tribal sovereignty and treaty rights, protect the cultures of Native Americans and Alaska Natives, and educate the American public about Native peoples. I've been honored to serve as one of NCAI's regional vice presidents, representing the Midwest. The annual convention moves across the country every year. This year, it's in Sacramento, California. I took a few minutes during the convention to catch up with other Native leaders and talk about what's important in tribal communities today. I'm here with Frank Ramirez, National Director of Governmental Affairs, Office of the National Commander, National American Indian Veterans, Inc. Hi, Frank. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Thanks so much for being with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, my name is Frank Ramirez. I'm an elder. I'm going to be 79 pretty soon. Uh, My tribe is the Lapan Apache out of Texas. I live in Sacramento. Uh, I worked in government for 35 years uh, in a ton of areas. And uh, my last 12 years, I did governmental affairs for the uh, state university system. And I've been working with uh, Indian vets forever. Uh, I retired in 1999. I got involved in doing we're going to talk about a little bit the recognition of a uh, American Indian, Alaska Native and Hawaiian Indigenous Veterans Organization. Never been recognized by Congress ever. And we've been in every war. We have a high percentage of veterans, more than anybody else. Uh, we have Medal of Honor recipients, but we've never had Congress recognize one American Indian, Alaska Native or, well, any Native uh, veterans organization. This will be the first time, and it's I'm so happy that finally we got on first base. Frank, you've been working for about 18 years, I believe you told me, on getting a Native American Veterans Organization recognized by Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about the process? Yeah, we actually started years ago with uh, Senator uh, Daniel Inouye from Hawaii and Nighthorse, Senator Nighthorse Campbell from Colorado, who's actually was born and raised in Sacramento, California. And uh, they said, you guys need to get recognized. And we started the process. It's been a long process. And you talk about the lonely trail, but I, uh, I never gave up. And, you know, to young people, you have to persevere. It's not always an easy trail. It's not always, I think, as, uh, I don't know who, maybe it was Martin Luther King said, you know, justice has a long arc. And sometimes it takes a long time before the light bends back. And the light has finally bent back, and Congress is going to recognize us as a congressionally recognized veterans group, Native American. First time ever since the beginning of the U.S. Can you tell me a little bit about just how that makes you feel personally as somebody who served in a vet himself? You know, it's uh, to be recognized by Congress. It makes me feel 100% whole. I feel for all our vets that came and passed before me, you know, all the wars. World War II, Korea, and for them not to be recognized by Congress officially. Now, they were recognized, you know, but to have an organization that's recognized as being congressionally recognized and supported by Congress, I am, I don't know how to say it, I'm elated. And for everybody that's crossed over from from our land, I want to thank them for being now recognized. They may have been here 10, 150, 200 years ago, but they now are, I'm proud that they're recognized now. Well, Frank, thank you so much to your dedication to this issue. Thank you for your service. Um, We appreciate everything you do and best of luck uh, as you move this through. Yeah. And for all our young vets, you know, persevere, never give up. Sometimes the light of justice is long, but I think Martin Luther King said justice does bend. And so be patient. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with Greg Mastin. Vice President of Tribal Nations Engagement and Special Projects with Native Americans in Philanthropy, here to talk a little bit about the Tribal Nations Initiative. Greg, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's nice to be with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm a member of the Yurok tribe, which is based in Northern California. I'm also a descendant of the Hoopa and the Kruk peoples. Um, I come from a family of tribal leaders. Um, Both of my parents were chairs of their tribe. So my whole life, I've... uh, grown up and really learned to understand and appreciate the challenges that our tribal communities face and why it's so important for us to um, come together and, and everyone of us to do what we can to 
help help better that. So you're with Native Americans in Philanthropy. Can you tell me a little bit about that organization? Yeah, so Native Americans in Philanthropy has been around for over 30 years. Um, we serve as kind of a, a base or central hub to connect um, the philanthropy world um, to Native peoples. So we have a really strong history of working with Native serving organizations and Native communities. Um, and we now have um, a new piece uh, called our Tribal Nations Initiative, which we're, we're wanting to see more investments into our actual tribal um, communities, tribal nations, their initiatives, um, their programs. Uh, we feel like that philanthropy has um, a, a massive opportunity to increase their support of Native peoples. Historically, um, out of all the philanthropic dollars that went out last year, uh, which was over $400 billion just in the United States alone, less than one half of 1% is going to support the first people of this nation, Native peoples. So we, we feel like through awareness and education, and now through this new platform, the Tribal Nations Initiative, where we're going to create actual programming and collaboratives um, and even uh, vehicles for investments um, to support various initiatives within Native communities, we want to shift that that dial. And so you're here at NCAI this week, National Congress of American Indians annual conference. Um, what are you hoping to, to do while you're here and how is being here going to help further your initiatives you're working on? Yeah, so uh, National Congress of American Indians is like the main um, conference that we go to to really connect with our tribal leaders. It's, you know, it's the main platform um, and they work on so many different issues, whether it's um, education or land issues, um, um, all the different policies that uh, need to address those things. Um, and so we're working on one, just trying to inform and educate on the opportunities of where philanthropy can kind of come in and help support these. Um, this morning we uh, presented at the Climate uh, Alliance uh, panel and talked about our Tribal Nations Conservation Pledge and Fund that we're working on right now. So that's direct investments into supporting tribal communities and tribal nations and their work. Uh, we also shared with them a new partnership that we're working on with the Department of the Interior and uh, looking at supporting uh, more public and private partnerships and where federal dollars um, can be leveraged and or where philanthropy can come in and be more creative in meeting some of the needs of our Native communities. Fantastic. What do you look forward to most about being at NCAI? Uh, just being with Native people is always just so, you know, warming to your heart. You know, you, we're out in this in this world and we're dealing with just different worldviews. And I just love being around my my family and friends and relatives. And no matter where you go across the country, it's like Native people are always just Native people. <laughs> you can just sit and laugh and talk about, you know, talk about home. I couldn't agree more. I love NCAI for that reason also. Greg, thank you so much for being with us and sharing a little bit more about your initiative at Native Americans in Philanthropy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm here with Executive Director of NCAI, Larry Wright, former chairman of the Ponca Tribe. How are you doing today, Larry? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You bet. Um, I was tribal chairman of the Ponca Tribe. Nebraska for 11 years and uh, served on council just shy of 18 years altogether. And uh, before that, actually during that time, I was also a secondary social studies teacher. I taught uh, government politics and civics and a couple of history classes here and there. And uh, when that wasn't enough, I went back and got a master's degree during that time. And uh, my time off of council, I started a general contracting business. So I'm uh, still trying to figure out what I want to do. And uh, all of those things have really helped prepare me for, for this role. Well, this week is a really important week for NCAI because it is the 79th annual conference. Um, can you talk a little bit about NCAI and its role in Indian country? Yeah, I, you know, our 79th year, we've been defending sovereignty since 1944. And, and really, you know, the mission of, of, of NCAI from its inception is still relevant today and is still as important today as it was when our, our ancestors formed this organization to defend sovereignty on, on all levels. And, and we know time and again that attack on our tribal sovereignty and, and all of Indian country is still prevalent. And we continue to have new cases that come up to erode that. And NCAI role, role in defending that is really listening to our tribal nations, our tribal leaders on, on actions that we need to be in front of to take the lead on working with our sister organizations as we all 
help in this space, but really take the lead and, and be the organization that Indian country looks to, that the administration and Congress look to. And, and we're, again, listening to our people to tell us what they want, and we carry that out. And so that work is, is never ending, it just evolves. And, and so it's, it's such an honor and a responsibility to be part of that. And uh, I know working with our executive committee, listening to the tribal leaders, they want uh, NCAI to be out in front and, and, and that will continue that mission. Can you tell us a little bit about what some uh, NCAI's top priorities are right now? Yeah, right now uh, we have the Brack King case that's coming up in the Supreme Court that's critical for Indian country and, and our next generation, that, that the potential uh, effort to reverse uh, Congress's uh, law that uh, protects ICWA and, and enforces ICWA and uh, really is an attack on our most precious resource, and, and that's our children. And if they are, if, they, if the Supreme Court reverses that, that has a, a generational effect uh, for our people. It, it affects our future culture and language and traditions. And, and uh, we've seen what, uh, what the impact was on Native nations before ICWA was in place, and, and we can't go back to that. And, and that's one piece to this. Uh, we continue to fight for VAWA and uh, the, um, the Castro Huerta case. Oh, sorry There's, to interrupt. Can you tell me what VAWA stands for? I'm sorry, the Violence Against Women Act and, uh, and all of those issues. And then by extension, we have this new case with uh, the Castro Huerta decision and the impact on, on jurisdictional issues by states into our reservations and our tribal nations. And so all of these things have a dovetail, uh, all connected in, in, in the uncertainty of Supreme Court decisions in these laws is just uh, something that Indian country is not going to sit back and, and let happen without a fight. NCAI has a lot of partners across Indian country. Can you kind of talk about some of the, the projects and um, things that you work on with some of the partner organizations? Yeah, it, and like the National Indian Health Board, um, uh, it, there, it, there's so many, uh, the national, well, in the Indian gaming association, uh, uh, NARF, uh, Native American rights fund, national Indian education association. So on the national level for those organizations, uh, it's important for NCI to be a strong partner and work with them on, on their specific issues. But every one of those is, is an extension of sovereignty. And so when we look at, at, you know, education sovereignty, when it comes to NIA, our sovereignty, when it comes to our healthcare and what's guaranteed to tribal nations and treaties and trust responsibility and the, the land that we gave up uh, for those rights. And so when, and then the Native American Rights Fund and its efforts to help be a partner, a strong partner for all these years to help defend these cases as well. And, and so then, and then you get into other organizations that deal with housing, that deal with uh, the ICWA, um, our Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, and, and many others. And, and there's, there's growing numbers, but how do we help partner, build those relationships, elevate those voices, and have what the mission of NCAI is to really bring that together and, and be a, a partner they can all count on. And uh, again, and that's at the direction of our leadership and our member tribes who help guide the direction that NCAI takes. I think that's a great example of the importance of NCAI and bringing everybody together. Um, a lot of our listeners might not know about the National Congress of American Indians and really the scope of work they do, but I think that was a great example of showing how much uh, NCAI means to Indian country. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, NCAI can't do it alone. And, and, and I think it's very important that we uh, make sure that that, that, uh, all of our organizations know that, all the tribal nations know that, that we don't operate in a, in a void and it has to be a coordinated effort. And we have to work with, you know, not, not only those organizations, but even our intertribal organizations of our regions who look at specific issues within their region. And we know that if one region's dealing with that issue, it might be a little different from another region, but it could be a very similar issue. And so are we reaching out to those intertribal orgs and their directors as they have the day-to-day -day contact with tribes in their region. And, and that helps magnify the voice, magnifies our efforts to, to really be on top of it, be proactive and, and not wait for uh, decisions to be made by the courts or Congress and, and, and helps us uh, have those conversations and have a plan on how we want to fight and, and, and uh, make sure that we're, we're at the table when, when those decisions happen. 
So this week um, is the annual conference, and there's a lot of things going on. Lots of sessions, lots of the events, um, listening sessions, that sort of stuff, consultations. Uh, what are you most looking forward to this week? You know, it's, it's really the face-to-face. And when you get so busy um, planning and, and doing the logistical, uh, all the logistical issues that need to be involved with this, and, and my our staff is tired of me saying this, but I've compared it to like making sausage. And so all that behind the scenes stuff to get ready for the, the forward facing event. And when you see tribal leaders here and, and people who've been involved with NCAI for many years who are lifetime members and have seen the ups and downs, and <clears throat> it's exciting to be at, at here now. It's in, you know, we've been in some challenging years for sure, but uh, know that uh, with the support of our executive committee, in the direction that uh, we want to go in to continue to be relevant and be strong. And, and that's really it. And, and as we prepare to get into our 80th year and, and see the tribal leaders come together and have these conversations and be part of them really just um, uh, reinforces uh, why we do what we do and why people come here to have those kind of conversations and help guide how Indian country wants to react to what's being forced on us still after all these years. But uh, in how we were going to respond. And so they hear that and see that and be part of those conversations after so many years of COVID and uh, people, you know, just are rejuvenated, it seems, to be back here. So, so far we've seen that and uh, just excited to see what the week brings us. Fantastic. Well, Chairman Wright, thank you so much for being with us and good luck at the conference this week. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. I'm here with Chairman Mark Macaro, Chairman of the Pachanga Band located here in California. Uh, he is also the first Vice President for NCAI. Thank you, Chairman Macaro, for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. May you say to everybody. Um, tell, where would you like to start? Yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I am the Tribal Chairman for the Pachanga Band of Indians, and um, uh, I serve together with six other members that Together, we, we've comprised the tribal council for our band. Um, we're elected in two-year terms, and uh, we just, we're just we at the front end of a term that started in August. So um, as far as myself, um, I, I have four kids. My wife is Holly Cook Macaro. She's from the Red Lake Band of Ojibwe in northern Minnesota. It's always good to know a little bit about uh, our tribal leaders. So okay. I think... You know, Indian country has a lot of issues facing them right now. And, you know, here at NCAI, it's a place to talk about and, and address some of those issues and devise strategy on how Indian country is going to address those um, in your region. Uh, what is, you know, one of the most pressing issues that uh, your tribes are concerned about? You know, I think I think something that that underlays everything that we deal with is a relative invisibility. I know that uh, in this day of social media, and um, there are efforts being made with uh, uh, entities like Illuminative that are trying to change the invisibility. TV shows that we've seen are, are definitely helping that. Um, and but, but it's still there. Um, just last week, there was a, uh, a Discover Magazine article that I saw online, and it was talking about these discoveries being made, uh, I believe it was in Lake Powell, and I think a portion of Lake Powell called Hughes Canyon. Now, I, I knew nothing about this before I saw the article, but the article references that among all the, with the lower water level due to climate change and lack of rain, uh, there there are these uh, ancient sites that are being exposed now. And um, there there was a line in particular that caught my my eye in the article, and it's that, um, that these sacred sites were regarded as sacred by the Indian people uh, who they belonged to. And it referenced, I think, Navajo, and Hopi, among others. And it spoke, continued to speak throughout the article in the past tense about how these sacred sites were regarded as sacred by the tribes. And um, I thought even, even with the prominence of, of probably one of the largest tribes in the U.S. being the Navajo, this magazine is still talking in the past tense as if we don't exist anymore. Um, and I, I do re realize that they were talking about how maybe they're not in that location anymore, but the sites are still sacred. I know wherever our tribes were evicted from, wherever our people have been evicted from, where we were, whether it's our place of origin or where we were for thousands of years and then we got moved by uh, by eviction or some other means, this, where we were, those things are still sacred to us. And we advocate for them, we protect them. And um, 
And the fact that a lot of a lot of people don't realize that still is is a problem. And it colors, I think, when coming to the present moment for things like our battles uh, in, to protect ICWA, to protect our children. Um, and and they want to why are, why are tribes? I mean, do we have tribes? And why are they asking these questions about trying to keep the children when these parents over here clearly will give their their children a better life? And you know, they don't see. It's like they don't see us. And um, or they pretend that they don't anyway, and they continue to, to use these arguments. So uh, I think that's a challenge for us to continue to work on to overcome and create that visibility so they cannot deny um, our, they cannot deny, deny law, they cannot deny us and, and what it is that we need to do to protect our people, our lands, our religion, our culture. I absolutely agree. The invisibility of Indian people is, I think, something that is definitely on the high priority list for tribal leaders to address. Um, and that's one of the reasons we host this podcast is to um, kind of lift that veil of invisibility. Um, so what are what are some things your tribe is doing to address that? So where we do have visibility and it, you know, it, it sometimes involves our gaming activities. You know, California has over 65 tribes that have gaming and um Sometimes that creates its visibility. Uh, in this particular moment, uh, there are efforts on the current ballot where we are. This is, I think we're, what, right at the end of, uh, of October? This is, in fact, Halloween, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, the election is on November 8th. And uh, the California ballot has two measures dealing with sports betting that would affect tribes. Um, one measure is, uh, tribally, uh, is tribally sponsored um, and it is losing. Um, and then uh, that, that would legalize sports betting in our tribal casinos. There's another uh, ballot measure that is brought on by DraftKings, FanDuel, and a whole bunch of others. And that would legalize sports betting for everybody, not just tribal casinos, but uh, the card rooms, the horse tracks, um, and other entities. Of course, the, the, the firms themselves, DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM. And um, that's that one's going to lose by a huge margin. But... So, so there's, there's been this visibility, probably not the best visibility, because there's been some negative arguments against tribes statewide in these campaigns. And, um, and then what happens, though, is that people have, tend to have short memories. The campaign's over, the ads will stop, and people will kind of forget um, that, that this campaign happened. And so uh, if there's something else two years from now, um, they will likely not remember the ads here. So um, that's one time, that's one arena where, where tribes come into uh, uh, visibility. Um, there's another, I, I would like to think that, that our, our, our proceedings here this week in California will create some positive visibility uh, for tribes here in the state as well as nationally. Um, and many times, often it does. Uh, NCAI has a profile in, in and amongst governments in the United States uh, even though you know we are an association of tribes, but there's there is a gravitas that we have that I think when when we do what we do as tribes under the NCAI banner, it is newsworthy. And the things we're going to be discussing are things that that attract attention. I think the confluence between our proceedings this week and a very in the middle of next week with the Brackeen case being heard in the Supreme Court will create that kind of visibility. By the way. Um, the, one of the things on NCAI's agenda this week is also discussion about a case out of uh, Oklahoma that is also in front of the Supreme Court, or uh, will be, and that's the uh, uh, Castro, versus, uh, Castro Huerta case. And um, that those discussions, I think, will create uh, the kind of newsworthy visibility that often gets generated. I agree. NCAI is a great platform to uh, increase that visibility. So despite all the issues that Indian country faced and the lack of visibility, our communities are resilient in so many ways. And, you know, I think it's always good to think about, you know, what are our hopes and dreams or what what are your positive outlooks on what's going on in Indian country right now? A lot of the hopes and dreams, certainly for my tribe, revolve around, um, I think, our, our, our younger generation. Certainly uh, the, the tribe, loosely, most people refer to as the millennials. Uh, those in my head, I think, seem to be early 30s and younger. Uh, certainly, we have a cohort in, amongst our tribal members uh, for uh, real strong and, and boisterous advocacy of, of, of issues that are different from, uh, the, from my generation as well as from um, my predecessors. Uh, 
the, you know, my parents' generation. For instance, uh, I am the chairman of the Pechanga Band of, of Indians. Pechanga Band of Indians. A year ago, actually, yeah, a year ago in November, our name was officially changed to that. Um, for the 20 years prior, we were the Pechanga Band of Luceno Mission Indians. Now, we have dropped, obviously, Luceno and Mission. Uh, both of those names refer to our time as uh, slaves uh, under the Mission San Luis Rey. And um, our millennials are the ones that not only questioned, why are we still identifying as the descendants of the slaves of Mission San Luis Rey, as Lucenos and as Mission Indians? And um, there really wasn't a good answer to that. And it really seemed that the time had come, as well as the political will internally, for my tribe to say, hey, we don't have to be a, a colonial uh, tribe in name anyway. We can change it. And so in the short term, that is our name right now. However, there's still dissatisfaction that that's not going to be our permanent identif identifier. Uh, we need a name that really taps into our language and who we are in our language, because that's our expression to the rest of the world. And, and that, that's we've kind of already gotten there um, on sentiment as far as our tribal membership goes. Um, politically, we need to take the next step and, and, and create the action to resolve to do that and then inform the United States that we've changed our name one more time. But when we do, it'll certainly be permanent and it'll likely be some variation of Pechanga Tribal Nation or Pechangayam Payomkawichum. Um, and Payomkawichum, that's the word for who we are uh, as a people on our land. We're the Western Indian people. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I think that's an example of uh, considerations tribe, tribes are making kind of all over the United States because a lot of our names don't reflect our traditional names mm. and, and values. So Absolutely. congratulations on, on creating that conversation and, and making that change within your community. Well, certainly our millennials brought it to us and um, we, we they engaged us and it was very positive and constructive and, and you know, they, they carried the day. Well, before we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Well, just a bit more on language. You know, um, with my tribe and many of the tribes in California, certainly, that, that I, I see all around us, we've made significant inroads in, in terms of, um, as <laughs> as I heard recently, uh, language preservation, and which I corrected to, to, to say uh, language usage, language revitalization. Um, you know, we've had, we have a bilingual uh, elementary school by the way. We have our funeral songs. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a singer of our funeral songs. We have uh, our millennials, which I've referred to, and they've been very hungry for our knowledge uh, that is in our songs, in our culture, in our language, and stuff that has been dormant for uh, a generation or two, certainly, at least. And um, they have not only uh, taken on the responsibility of learning these things, but of using it daily. And it's amazing to see, and this isn't just with my tribe, this is with many tribes throughout the state. And I, I think, uh, for instance, in the Culture Night today, uh, coming up on Wednesday, you will see uh, a lot of this on display, that the bird songs, which had, had dwindled to just a few singers 30 years ago, um, are, are now thriving in, in, in many groups and, and groups of singers throughout various reservations in Southern California. And it's wonderful to see this this renaissance, this growth, and um, a lot of it ties into our language. And there are just certain things that can't be expressed other than in our language. Certain things can't be done other than through in our language. We can't sing our songs in anything but our language. And you have to know what the songs are saying when you sing it. So there's it's really in-depth when people, our youth, our, our, our young folks are learning these things because they're, they're the continuity to the next generation and the generation beyond that for carrying us forward. And that is, um, it's empowering as for us as, as tribal peoples here, when so many did so much to try to make us disappear, yet we're here and we're thriving with this, once again, our culture and our language. And so I'm, I'm, I wanna see what the next year and the year after that uh, continue to, as it unfolds, what it presents to us, because it, it is, it's hopeful and uh, it's encouraging. That's a beautiful example of the resilience of Native people. And I think it's also inspiring to think that our youth are really stepping up to the plate and, and doing what they need to do. So uh, thank you so much, Chairman Makaro, for being with us today. And I hope you have a great day and enjoy the conference. Everything will be, everything will be fine. Everything will be good. 
Thank you. Uh, today I'm here with President Shannon Holsley of Stockbridge Muncie. Uh, she is also the treasurer for the National Congress of American Indians. Shannon, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. Um, you know, it's been it's an honor. It's it's such a good feeling to be among so many wonderful and beautiful natives and our allies and so many people that are gathering here in Sacramento this week to just really um, uplift each other and to remind us about our resiliency and our strength. I completely agree. It has been a fabulous couple of days already. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, I serve as our tribal president. I'm serving my fourth term. However, I've served on my tribal for my tribal government over the past 17 years. In between going to graduate school and doing other things, um, just to prepare myself for this really significant role, especially at a time in the 21st cent- century where. Um, we are so challenged as Indigenous communities um, and the invisibility around who we are, but we're also able to amplify our voices as political bodies. I know a lot of people don't realize that we're not Native American um, communities are not just race based, but we're um, politically based. Also, Um, there are over 574 federally recognized tribes that engage our federal um, partners for their trustee uh, to uphold our trustee obligations. But also an important reminder for a lot of maybe your listeners that um, tribal nations are not sub-sovereigns to states, that tribal nations have that unique political position that they take as their own self-governing sovereign nation. And I think that is a really good point to remember. And I think when we talk about the National Congress of American Indians and their role in being that partner in liaison, um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the organization and its importance in Indian country? Absolutely. Um, we are the longest and oldest standing Native American policy based um, organization. We're coming upon 80 years next year. Um, we were established in 1944 with just very simplistic core missions to uphold and defend our trust and treaties. But also it it is a platform by which we're able to educate people of who we are as indigenous people and the unique gifts that we bring to the world. It is also an opportunity to build future succession within our tribal nations. You know, um, I think our youth represent the brain trust of who we are. And I think every opportunity we have to build upon them is really good. In the past several years, we've had a phenomenal board that really acutely focused on investing in our youth, not just talking about we support our youth, but in a more actionable way where we have a youth council where they serve and they have parity to um, the board itself in, in engaging and in sort of identifying the future um, challenges as youth that they face as Indigenous people and um, helping align those goals and priorities so we as a, as a, a National Congress of American Indians can grow into the future. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of uh, different topics on the agenda for the conference this week. What are some of the things that you think are the most important that tribes should be focusing on? Absolutely. Well, this year's theme is um, defending sovereignty since 1944. And I always tell people um, sovereignty is not a noun. It's actually an adjective and it's intended to be actionable. As indigenous um, sovereign nations, um, we have the uh, the ability to influence outcomes and um, ser- programs and services and things that we receive um, through our trustee obligation. And so it's critically important. I sit on the uh, VAWA task force with Dr. Juana Mahal Dixon, and we had our, our task force meeting yesterday. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is as we made the correlation of how um, these oppressive um, practices and challenges that we face in Native communities, especially as it relates to violence against women, but not just women. I think a lot of people don't realize that the violence that's imposed upon our people um, more often than not, is actually of our 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 LGBTQ communities as well. It's not just um, monolithic or just isolated to women; that it's it's um, collective. So we talked about the interplay of how Castro Huerta um, is being looked at. Um, from we have a, a significant Supreme Court case that's going to be heard next week, Brackeen versus Halland, and it really comes down to. Um, an actionable authority of who has authority on indigenous um, lands and um, the, the um, how people are imposed if they are, you know, when there is crimes against our citizens, um, who is who has those jurisdictional authorities or even in Brackeen versus Halland about ICWA, which Indian Child Welfare, it was 
established many, many decades ago. And it's perceived um, in, in America as the gold standard. And essentially what that means is, is that um, as indigenous communities, before children are adopted, there is a, an attempt to, to reconvene or to um, make sure that that child is put back in a home. Because uh, as you well know, Rebecca, our culture, our language, and our tradition are such a large um, uh, you know, makeup of who we are as people. And so, uh, you know, when a child is taken from that environment, it is, it, it, they lose a sense of who they really are. And, and so we all know that we're grounded in that. And so, you know, it's not just as a part of our identity, but it's it just implicitly who we are. I agree. And ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, was put in place as a result of, you know, the genocidal war that was waged against our people through the boarding school era. Um, so ICWA is is a very important uh, policy, and it's something we have to keep an eye on as Indian people. Are there other things at the conference that you think uh, we should highlight? Well, I, you know, I think there is so many things. I think as Indigenous people, we could probably talk about this all day. But I think, um, you know, the theme around defending sovereignty is all intercorrelated to what we do each and every day as legislators, as tribal nations. I remind people all the time that tribal tribal nations are not monolithic. There's uniqueness to each of us. Um, but, you know, when it comes to policy, when it comes to how we um, build those allies and educate people uh, or the world, quite honestly, of who we are as Indigenous people, this affords us from a policy perspective to make sure that we strengthen those relationships and make sure we educate people and remind them that they have a trustee obligation to us. You know, when you talk about even, for example, like previously VAWA, you know, it got reauthorized after 2000, a long stint of reauthorization waiting since 2013. It's finally reauthorized um, because our indigenous um, brothers and sisters in Alaska and in Maine did not have the same afforded protections. And so um, it, it also requires resources. It's not enough to just reauthorize something, uh, something and say everything's going to turn out. You know, as we robustly exercise our sovereignty, there needs to be resources to help build court codes, to adjudicate, to make make sure that all of those things, that infrastructure is in place. And that requires consultation, that requires engagement, and that um, requires um, us reminding our trustee of their obligation and making sure that we bring those critical, critical resources back to our tribal communities. And um, the Violence Against Women Act, also known as VAWA, uh, is something that is very critical in Indian country because it gives us uh, some degree of jurisdiction and control, but also addresses some of the invisibility around um, our, our men and women in Indian country that are harmed um, Indeed. all the time. Um, what about specifically your tribal nation? What are what are some of the things that you're engaged in um, that, you know, you're really excited about? Well, you know, it's, it's just nice to be. Um, I don't know if the pandemic will ever truly end, but it's nice to be on the other side of it where um, tribal nations are starting to manage things differently. I think, you know, I think we learned uh this pandemic taught us a lot about who we were and the resiliency and how Native American communities actually responded to it. But there was a lot of growth, especially for my tribal nation. We're in a rural um, community located in Wisconsin, although we're not originally from Wisconsin. We've been in Wisconsin um, for less than a couple hundred years. We originally, our ceded territory was upstate New York. Um, so for us, you know, it was like building infrastructure. So even pre-pandemic, we decided that, um, you know, the public health and safety was critical to our tribal nation because we're rural. We have um, our police officers are cross-deputized. However, um, you know, it's a vast responsibility that goes into it to the um, health and safety of my citizens. So you have we looked at um, building. We partnered with a local municipality to build um, broad to bring broadband. So my tribe. Um, initiated and um, engaged in about 56 miles and on a tribal reservation. That's pretty significant of, of infrastructure of, um, you know, the fiber optic. And we, con we connected with a local telephone company and they administer the service. But also because, um, you know, we've recently gotten approval for FCC licenses to bring cell towers. And it's just not to improve cell phone service. It's for public safety. I think a lot of people don't realize that. And currently, our real one of the challenges we have is, is our, our 911 calls are going 
to a jurisdiction that doesn't govern us and doesn't respond to us. So it's really critical that we bring those kinds of infrastructure needs to our tribal community. We're also, you know, along with the other uh, 10 other tribes of Wisconsin, we're building an adolescent wellness and treatment facility, which I am, is, is, is really one of my, I consider one of my legacies and one of my, uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. It's uh, an adolescent culturally centric in treatment facility. Um, you know, uh, we're still in a pandemic, but we're on, there's an endemic issue of, um, the opi opioid crisis that is existing within our tribal communities all over the United States. Um, but specifically, uh, youth as young as nine years old um, in, a, in the perils of addiction. So we knew that we were going to trust in our own healing. So we decided collectively that we were going to build an adolescent in-treatment facility that was culturally centric, where our, our um, young people could um, reclaim who they were and the invisibility or some of the um, confusion about indigenous people and their culture and their language and their traditions, a place where it's safe for them to, to, to weigh in and receive Western care, but with indigenous inherent ceremonies and practice of, you know, burning sage and, um, caring for other things, um, land stewarding, building a vegetable garden, doing basic things and helping them um, come to healing. So our our theme for our, our treatment center is it's their journey to healing because it's their four seasons. And it's not just specific to the actual youth. We're going to do wraparound services so that the family also will heal because we know that um, intergenerationally, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma that exists talked about previously the boarding school experience and the genocidal practices that have been imposed on indigenous people since first contact. And so it's a lot of reclamation and truth and healing in that way. That's amazing. Um, and uh, congratulations to your community for getting that off the ground. I know that's something we're working at uh, in Shakopee, along with the three other Dakota tribes in Minnesota. So that's wonderful. Um, so we've talked about a lot, you know, some of the threats to Indian country, uh, some court cases that could have a really big impact. Mm -hmm. You've provided some inspiring stories about uh, ways you're addressing issues in your own tribal nation. Um, what are, you know, some of your greatest hopes uh, for the future of Indian country? I think, you know, our youth obviously represent the brain trust of who we are. And, you know, they're just like our generation, we represent the seeds of our ancestors and it's it's cyclic that they be able to grow and thrive because for a long time, indigenous communities um, were in survival mode and we're, we are, we're, we've now made major strides in investing in our youth from educational endeavors to reclamation of our language and our culture. And I think we need to amplify that, you know, because they are going to be the ones that carry on our legacies and um, essentially become the people that represent our tribal citizens in terms of their ongoing needs and making sure that we continue to amplify our message to the world that against, um, you know, genocide, against a pandemic, against, you know, boarding schools experiences, we're still here. We're still resilient and, and from a position of strength. I want to be able to let our, our youth see themselves as I see them. I always tell our youth, you know, if um, if you think that this world, um, you don't fit into this world, it's because you're here to create a new one for yourselves. And I think that, you know, we know that the future is female based on the last census. And that's just collective throughout the country. But we we know that it is diverse and it's inclusive. And that inclusivity includes our, our children. And so they will play a major role in how we bring healing because I'm, I'm hopeful that this new generation is going to bring healing to the world by just existing and conveying who they really are and the beautiful blessings that they are to all of us. I love that. President Holsey, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm here today with Gonzo Flores, uh, who is from the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas. Uh, he is also a representative uh, for the South Southern Plains region uh, for NCAI. Gonzo, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be interviewed by the esteemed Rebecca Crookston. I love it. Um, I'm the tribal administrator for the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas. Um, my family's lived there in the Rio Grande Valley for about a thousand years. Um, specifically, our clan has held the medicine with the peyote for the last 800. And um, I'm a traditional medicine man, as well as director of economic development, custodian, and everything else, it seems like. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's trying to steward the people moving forward, just like a lot of Indian country. Our people are suffering. I want to make sure we provide answers rather than just talk. 
Like many uh, people in Indian country, you wear many hats. Uh, I think that's common. So thank you for all the work you do. We're here at NCAI this week. Um, what are some of the issues facing your region that you're hoping to highlight and, and bring to NCAI to talk about? Uh, first and foremost is the MMIW um, crisis that occurs in Texas. A lot of the times you hear about it in other states, but... Um, Texas is often overlooked because of the fracking and therefore the man camps that rove around the region. And you're looking at a tremendous amount of uh, movement that goes on and a tremendous amount of trafficking. That combined with the border, you have the cartels to deal with directly. So it isn't an indirect issue when people talk about border states. It's not to say that it's not like other ones, but the Texas-Mexico border is super violent when it comes to cartels and combine that with the man camps and the, um, well, let's just say there's room for improvement with the current administration in the state of Texas and their uh, state attorney general and their law enforcement where uh, negotiations sometimes come to a standstill and, you know, these ladies are still missing and, and murdered. Okay, that is definitely a big issue across Indian country and something that I think all the tribes are focused on. And hopefully we can make some movement to address some of those issues. Um, despite, you know, some of those heavier issues across Indian country, there's a lot of really great things going on. Um, can you talk a little bit about some uh, inspiring things in your region or tribal community? Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, we got some of our land back, which is kind of unheard of because we're still a state recognized tribe. We're not federally recognized yet. And then we ceded back our own New Apache Cemetery that we've had for officially since the 1600s by, you know, whoever was there at the time. And so uh, that was a huge thing because that's a nice it's a nice um, leverage point because working with the other tribes in the area, the Kickapoos to the north and the Tigwas to the west and the Alabama Cushota in the east to show that even in this atmosphere of anti-Indian everything, um, that, you know, it's still possible to work out some solutions. And it was a win-win between uh, the tribe as well as the, uh, the Big Bin alliances, their conservation groups. Uh, you know, it, it's more than just reclaim their land. It's about uh, environmental restoration. That's wonderful. Congratulations on getting that land back. Uh, I think that's something we, all of us tribes need to focus on for sure. Um, so we're here at NCI this week. What are you most looking forward to uh, about the conference and some of the events going on? I was very moved by the uh, Jim Thorpe uh, presentation last night uh, during the reception, as well as seeing a lot of tribal leaders I haven't seen in person in a very long time. When I was running our caucus meeting yesterday, uh, there were some very, uh, I can say old, they said not to call them all from Kiowa Nation and Sac Fox. And they looked at me at first and they went, Gonzo, you cut your hair. It's about time you cleaned up. So it was pretty funny. But uh, like I said, it was great to see not just the elders, but people who are still in the fight who've been with NCEI for 45 years. And, uh, and we voted to have another meeting today, which is unheard of as caucuses go sometime. But um, it was good. It was that. And I'm I'm always amazed at the amount of sharing of information as no matter what you think about a particular group or tribe or whatever. Uh, I have already walked away saying, wow, there is not just room under the big teepee that people in the end, they really know that all sovereignty is in trouble. So that's been very optimistic for me where I thought there'd be uh, more contentious issues. Even the contentious issues, um, it didn't go away, but everybody's decided to cooperate because there's bigger fish to fry. Well, as we look to the future here in Indian country, can you share with me maybe like one of your hopes and dreams uh, for the future of Indian country or your tribal nation? Uh, well, of course, obviously being federally recognized is always a good one. But I think the bigger issue uh, for us, especially when it comes to uh, the environment and plant medicine in particular, is to uh, develop a consortium of tribes that are in charge of the power grid and utilities in the area. And um, we have some initiatives that, of course, I'm stewarding, but nonetheless, um, that they are about green energy and helping uh, reduce the destruction with the aquifer and the Permian Basin, uh, as well as providing direct funding for um, the 
our own version of the MMIW department at Department Interior. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today, Gonzo. I appreciate your insight and keep up the good work. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay. And take care. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm here with Chief Executive Melanie Benjamin from the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. Chief Benjamin, thank you for being here so much. Melanie Benjamin, and I am the Chief Executive, the elected tribal chairwoman for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe in East Central Minnesota. Well, we are so glad to have you here. Uh, we're here at NCAI, and there are a lot of really exciting things going on. Um, you're here as your tribal leader, tribal nation delegate. Um, what are you looking forward to doing while you're here at NCAI? What I always look forward to when I'm at the National Congress of American Indians is to actually network with our federal partners with other tribal leaders that are dealing with the same kinds of issues that we deal with back in Minnesota at the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe and just meeting up with friends and, and making new friends because we're all here today to make sure that we learn, we experience the best practices so we can bring those back home. I agree. I agree. It's so wonderful to be here with all of our friends, but also I think that networking is so vital. Um, so in your community, what are some of the issues that are in the front of your mind as you're here at NCAI? Nickel mining is probably one of the worst mining practices there is. We are really concerned that they will leave nothing but devastation in our area and how that impacts the watersheds, our natural resources, our animals, our people, and of course, most importantly, the water. The water is life. And so we have a big fight ahead of us and um, we ask for a lot of support and prayers so we can make sure that we continue our duty to protect Mother Earth. You know, I think that's one of the things I like about being at NCAI is uh, climate change is, is a big topic around here, and rightfully so, because it impacts Native American communities disproportionately uh, to other communities and communities of color, right? Um, and I think a lot of tribes are in the forefront of leading environmental initiatives. What are some of the things you're doing at Mille Lacs uh, to keep the environment healthy and safe? Number one, we live on the shores of the Lake Mille Lacs, one of the best walleye fishing lakes in the state of Minnesota. And we took our treaty rights all the way up to the Supreme Court in the 90s. And one of our responsibilities is to protect that oga, the walleye that's in that lake, and all of the other species of fish. And I think that's one of the things we have to look at. What is climate change doing to the lake and how that sustains us? Because that precious resource that the money do gave us is something that we always have to make sure we protect. And so, of course, we co-manage with the state of Minnesota. We look to our elders to remind us of practices that we as Anishinaabe have to follow to make sure we protect the, the walleye and the other species in the lake. And you think about our plants and our trees, and because of climate change, Many of our trees are migrating north. So some of the species that were in our area are no longer there because of climate change. And it took the rest of the world to kind of catch up to what indigenous leaders have been saying for generations. I agree. There's a lot of wisdom and knowledge in uh, our Indigenous communities. You know, despite a lot of the issues that Indigenous communities face, we are a resilient people and have uh, a lot of great initiatives going on, great things to look forward to. Um, what's something that inspires you or that you look forward to about Indian country and our future? I think about the future generations. And when you come to a convention like National Congress of American Indians, you see all the talented Anishinaabe people, the ones that are fighting for their rights and their resources back at home. And being able to be a part of that is very inspiring. And I want to make sure that I leave that legacy for our young people, that they're excited, that they're ready to protect our homelands. Well, Chief Executive Benjamin, thank you so much for being here. I think you are an inspiration to many of our youth and a mentor to many, including me. So thank you for that mentorship. And um, I hope you have a wonderful day and enjoy the conference. Thank you. And the same to you as well. Miigwech. I'm here with Rob Sanderson Jr. of Alaska. He represents the Alaska region as the alternate area vice president for NCAI. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing all right. Thanks for being here with us today. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yes. Uh, 
my native name is uh, uh, Haida name is uh, Gusua. That means talk too much. And like you said, uh, my taxpayer name is Rob Sanderson Jr. So, and I serve as the Alaska Area VP. And back home in our territories, I serve as the second vice president of the Clinton Haida Central Council, Tribes of Alaska. Uh, we are the largest tribe in the state of Alaska with approximately 30,000, 34,000 enrolled members. Wow, that's a lot of people. Um, Alaska is one of the largest regions uh, in the NCAI region with, I think, representing the most tribes. Can you talk a little bit about your region and some of the issues that are important to you? Yeah, right now, uh, you know, Alaska stands at 229 federally recognized tribes. Uh, I live in the southeast region, uh, the southern part of Alaska. And uh, right now, uh, a lot of our issues uh, threatening our sovereignty uh, in the state of Alaska is the Alaska Native Corporations. Uh, going after federal funds, trying to seek federal recognition uh, as tribes. And that's something that we're going to continue to push back on, uh, uh, on tribal leadership. Um, and to me, that's the biggest threat facing the Alaskan tribes today, uh, is that uh, large uh, native corporations are truly, really seeking tribal recognition status. And if that comes... If they were to get that, then that will water down our sovereignty, our funding. And to me, that's just another way of making tribes disappear. I mean, we're, our, our own people are our own enemy. You know, that's the way I look at it. You know, uh, people different view it differently. Everybody has their own views, but those are my views. You know, you can't be a, 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 uh, a director on the ANC and be a tribal leader at the same time. I, I just don't know how you do that. You know, I don't ride defense. I strictly stick on the tribal side of issues, you know. Uh, in my position, my tribe, uh, we are pushing back on them. So we'll just have to see where that goes. Thank you. Despite some of the issues facing Indian country and our efforts to defend our sovereignty, there's still a lot of really inspiring and empowering things going on that show the resilience of Indian people in the good direction we're headed in. Can you talk a little bit about some of the inspiring things going on in your region? Yeah. One, one thing, you know, uh, a lot of our people say is that, you know, our water, uh, our food, you know, uh, and I'll go along with uh, food sovereignty. You know, without food sovereignty, we have no sovereignty at all. Uh, and, and this is just my personal take on it. Uh, the difference between uh, food security and food sovereignty is that food security, you're able to jump in your car and go down to the local grocery store and buy whatever you need and bring it home. That's food security. Food sovereignty is being able to protect your indigenous food that our ancestors have been living off of and drinking water from for millennia. And so... That's the difference between food sovereignty and food security. And so anyway, just recently uh, in protecting our uh, food sovereignty, uh, we had fishery meetings uh, up in the state of Alaska, in Anchorage, Alaska, where we recently had a series of meetings with the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council and we were able to acquire a tribally designated seed on the advisory panel to the North Pacific and uh, so that's the first ever, ever designated seed on that federal fishery. Uh, and we're not stopping there. Uh, we're looking to push for two seats uh, on the advisory panel, also on the main council. Uh, and this, uh, that's the largest, uh, most powerful uh, federal fishing group in the United States. The only one that trumps that is uh, NOAA. But NOAA is everywhere, and all that falls under the Department of Commerce, National Marine Fisheries. But the main players that sets policy for our fisheries up there is uh, the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council. So we're able to get a seat on that. So that really helps us in protecting our food sovereignty, at least from the sea. And next, we need to get seats on the board of fish and the board of game. Uh, so the, that's our next big fight up there is to seek uh, uh, seats, permanent seats on these uh, different boards that control our way of life up there, hunting, fishing. And then recently, the uh, state of Alaska finally uh, recognized tribes uh, uh, through the legislature, uh, and it was signed up by Governor Don Levy last year. And so now the uh, state of Alaska has to recognize tribes as sovereigns. So that was a good victory for us. And there was a lot of players that were involved in that. And so kudos to them. There's too many for me to name. But uh, our very own uh, President Peterson was one of the main players, though. That's great. Congratulations on um, making that progress. Uh, we're here at NCAI this week. 
There are a lot of events going on and lots of great sessions. What's something you look forward to most about being here at NCAI? Well, I'm all about uh, youth leadership. You know, uh, today I was asked to help the youth conduct their elections at four o'clock for their youth commission here. And I agreed to it. Uh, We have nobody in there from our area that's actually running for it. So they asked me to help. That's great. Rob, thank you so much for being here and enjoy your week at NCAI. Thank you. You too. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.